Welcome to Educate for Life. I'm your host, Kevin Conover, and we're broadcasting from Southern California. If you're local, you can listen on our local Christian station, KPraise 1210 AM, if you still listen to radio, and also on FM 106.1 in North County. Uh, but we're also all over the, the internet. We've got a, a YouTube channel. We're on uh, Facebook. Uh, we're everywhere, so you can check it out. I've got interviews up there with all kinds of different experts in their particular field, whether that's somebody who's an expert on is Islam, whether that's somebody who's an expert on Buddhism, uh, whether it's dealing with scientific issues um, or social and cultural issues. We've got now over 200 interviews up uh, with experts all over the place who are talking about how God has impacted their life and then how God is using them to impact the lives of those around them. And I'm excited to let you know my guest today is Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross. He's an astronomer. He's the founder and president of Reasons to Believe. That's an organization dedicated to integrating scientific fact and biblical faith. And his books include, among many others, Weathering Climate Change, Why the Universe is the Way It Is, and Navigating Genesis. And uh, Dr. Ross, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. And um, you can find out more about uh, Hugh at reasons.org. Uh, that's his website, and there's all kinds of great stuff up there. Now, I do have to uh, preface this show. Um, I very frequently have guests on my show, whether that's atheists. I've had Lawrence Krauss on the show, uh, who's a physicist who teaches that the universe came from nothing. And I've had uh, Dan Barker on the show and many other people who um, I'm not on the same page with. And Hugh and I, I just like to, because I don't want to get uh, letters uh, written to, to the, the radio station, which I've had happen before. I just want to cl clarify that Hugh and I have a difference of opinion about the age of the earth, but I love talking to people that have different opinions than I do, because what I've found is I can learn a ton rather than talking with people that agree with me all the time. And so uh, I just want to preface that we, we're living in a time right now where uh, they're calling it the cancel culture, right? Um, and, and this is a scary thing to me, honestly, uh, where we've decided if I don't agree with somebody, I'm just going to shut them down and I'm not going to talk to them. And I think that's one of the most dangerous things you can do because it shuts off the ability to learn. And um, I've experienced this myself. I was going to speak at a church here locally in San Diego, uh, Nazarene Church. And before I, w I went, the pastor called me up and he said, hey, Kevin, I want you to know that I've had about three professors uh, from the local uh, Nazarene University call and say that they don't want you to come speak at our church. But uh, And I wasn't even speaking on, on anything controversial. It was things that we all agreed on. But uh, they didn't want me to speak there. And uh, thank God the pastor um, decided to have me speak anyway. But um, I just think that's a bad trend uh, for us as Christians. We want to dialogue with people, be intelligent, and learn. Um, we all have to take a humble position. So that being said, uh, uh, Dr. Ross, I, um, can you tell us um, a little bit about, uh, I'm going to start with this question. When I was at Biola, I got a master's degree in apologetics from Biola. There was a speaker there who inferred that God could have used evolution. Now, I know Biola doesn't support, uh, you know, theistic evolution or evolution as a viable theory. Um, and, I, and so I don't know if he wasn't vetted or what happened, but I raised my hand and I said, hey, uh, you know, did you just infer that evolution is a possible um, mechanism for gods in the creative process? And he said to me, um, that's an origin issue. It doesn't matter. And so what I wanted to ask you is, what do you think about that? What, what, what do you think about that statement? It's an origin issue. It doesn't matter. What are your thoughts? Well, if it's an origin issue, it does matter. I mean, who's responsible for the origin? Uh, is it the God that created the universe? Uh, or is it just natural process that unfolds? Are we looking at deism or are we looking at theism? And if we're looking at theism, are we looking at Jesus Christ, the Redeemer God of the Bible? Those are issues that the Bible addresses, but the book of nature also addresses. So it's not something that science is silent on. It's very much apropos. And uh, that's why we at Reasons to Believe are engaged in dialoguing uh, with people who take these different positions. So for our listeners, can you clarify um, what your position is and how the nuance there? Because a lot of people have no idea about the difference. I know when I was younger, I had no idea that there was these different positions. I was completely uh, caught, caught unawares. And, and then slowly over time, I realized, oh, okay, people have these different views. Um, what are the different positions that Christians take when it comes to uh, creation? And you, you're, you specifically uh, wrote a book, Navigating Genesis, um, that's based on this very subject um, to, clar to give clarity to people. Um, what are the different positions that people have? 
Well, I participated in a book called Four Views on uh, Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design, where the four dominant positions within the Christian community uh, were discussed. And those four were uh, Young Earth Creationism, and the author of that one was Ken Ham. And then we had uh, Deborah Harzma of BioLogos. Uh, she was defending evolutionary creationism, uh, which she considered to be distinct from theistic evolution. And I know Deborah quite well, and I basically in the book said, you know, please make a distinction. And uh, the theistic evolution is a very broad camp, but a lot of theistic evolutions believe God exists, uh, but he stopped doing anything in terms of the natural realm after he created the universe. Evolutionary creationists don't take that position. They believe that God was involved, but involved in a way that science cannot determine. And so my critique of her position is, while you're claiming the book of nature can't distinguish between atheism, deism, and Christianity, whereas our position of reasons to believe is that the scientific record indeed can do those very things, I defended the old earth creationist position, which is the idea that God created uh, over the time scale uh, that geologists and astrophysicists determine namely 14 billion years for the universe and four and a half billion uh, for uh, Earth. Uh, and then we had uh, Steve Meyer of the Discovery Institute, and he defended the intelligent design movement, which basically says, we're going to look at this whole issue from science alone, independent of the Bible. And so he really didn't want to get into the issues of the biblical creation text. And my response to him in the book was, well, we all know where the Discovery Institute stands, but what about you personally? Mm. And being a friend of Steve, I knew that he actually believed that the creator was Jesus Christ. And so, and he also believed that the origin of life, like I do, is a supernatural event. It's not naturalistic. And likewise, uh, when we see the major introductions of life in the fossil record, those are supernatural. And he basically thanked me for giving him an opportunity uh, to express where he stands personally, as opposed to where the Discovery Institute stands. Oh, uh, but the great. book is an excellent place to go to find out uh, the different positions. And what I thought was especially revealing about the book, each of the four authors had a different position on biblical inerrancy. They all said they defended biblical inerrancy, but they all had different definitions. I was the only one of the four authors that was willing to endorse biblical inerrancy as is defined by the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. And so that tells me, hey, when somebody says they believe in biblical inerrancy, you need to ask them, what kind do you believe in? Mm -hmm. Very interesting, huh? Um, so, so for more clarity there, just uh, I've spoken, I actually had the opportunity in a, in a green room uh, to, to overhear a discussion with Stephen Meyer. He said he was a... Uh, he, he said he was old earth and then he, um, but he believed in a recent humanity, uh, which I thought was interesting. So there is this. So um, for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, a progressive uh, creationist essentially believes that God started things somewhere around 14, 15 billion years ago, created, then created some more a, a while later, then created some more a while later until he gets down to Adam and Eve. Is that accurate what I'm saying? Yes, uh, the position we hold at Reasons to Believe is you've got God intervening with millions of creation miracles over the time scale of the universe that culminates with God creating Adam and Eve. As it tells us in Genesis, God went into a state of arrest after he created Eve. And I think that explains why you get so many biologists today saying, we see no scientific evidence uh, for the supernatural handiwork of God. They're looking on the wrong day. We're looking at day seven when God's at rest and explains why so many of us who are astronomers say we see evidence for God everywhere because almost all of our data comes from the six days of creation, not the day of rest when God mm. is ceasing from his work of creation. I see. Okay. So the, the, the big difference, so you, you believe in a literal Adam and Eve. You don't adhere to uh, uh, that. Those are figurative uh, characters. I believe in a literal Adam and Eve. I believe the entire human species is descended from that one man and one woman that God specially created. And like Steve Meyer, I believe that's a relatively recent event. 
Mm. In fact, I've written in Navigating Genesis, you actually get a more accurate date uh, for the origin of humanity from the Bible than you do the scientific record. Because the problem is you've got the origin of humanity in a time window where we don't have any objective, reliable dating method. Uh, there's a range between about 45,000 years and 250,000 years where we do not have any objective dating tool. So well, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, the Bible uh, actually gives you a more accurate date. Okay, now when you say um, we don't have an accurate dating method, 45 to, I think you said 250,000 years, is that what you said? Right. So, so are you talking specifically about radioisotope dating and um, like ca carbon dating is only accurate to somewhere around 50,000 50, years? Is that uh, accurate? Yeah, carbon dating, I mean, any radiometric tool is going to be accurate within about a factor of six of its half-life. And with carbon-14, that's 5,715 years. So if you multiply that by six, you're getting to roughly 35 to 40,000 years ago. That's where you're going to get an accurate date. Uh, 45,000, uh, you'll get a date that's you know, accurate to plus or minus two or 3,000 years. Older than that, you're not going to get an accurate date, mainly because everything's going to date to be about 58,000 years old, no matter how old it is, through metaerectic dating. Why? Because you've got residual uranium and thorium everywhere. And the radiation of uranium and thorium is bound to convert some nitrogen into carbon-14. So you've got what's called a background level. Mm. That explains why even ancient diamonds and zircons, if you date them with carbon-14, are going to give you a date of about 58,000 years. That's simply the background you get from the uranium and thorium that's in the environment. Mm. Uh, but yeah, earlier than 45 or 40,000 years, we really don't have, uh, we have what we call uh, dating methods uh, that have, uh, that are indirect, you know, things like uh, thermal luminescence, optical luminescence, and uh, you may have heard of things like uh, uranium precipitation, where they compare the rate of uranium precipitation to thorium precipitation. But those are indirect methods that have very large systematic errors. Mm. And I actually wrote an article on our reasons.org website explaining how large these systematic errors are. In some cases, the systematic errors are plus or minus 200%. Oh, wow. So what does this mean then? What is the conclusion here when you say, okay, we don't have, we don't have reliable dating methods, 45 to 250,000 years. Um, what does this mean when, when having a discussion with somebody who's, who's uh, you know, says, okay, you know, the Bible's not true, or somebody says, um, you know, I believe in, in evolution, or is that relevant? How, how does that affect that discussion? Well, the very best scientific date we got for the origin of humanity is 150,000 years ago, plus or minus 150,000 years. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, again, we know that humanity has been here for 40,000 minimum because of carbon-14. And we were able to calibrate that with high precision. So that's kind of gives you, uh, uh, you know, at, at an upper bound. However, when we go to Genesis chapter 2, it tells us that God created Adam and Eve when four known rivers come together in the Garden of Eden. And notice the text names the four rivers and tells us where they flow from. And uh, because of the detail it's given in Genesis 2, we can identify those four rivers. Two of them flow today, the Tigris and the Euphrates. The Gihon and the Pishon are dried up riverbeds. They were flowing during the last ice age when there was lots of melting snow and ice, but they no longer flow today. Uh, which tells us that the creation of Adam and Eve took place sometime during the last ice age. And we can go on a map and see where those four rivers come close together. And where they come close together is in the southeast portion of the Persian Gulf. Well, during the last ice age, uh, that was dry land. Today, it's 200 feet below sea level. But during the last ice age, the sea levels were 300 to 400 feet lower than they are today. And so that tells us that God created Adam and Eve sometime during the last ice age, which gives you a date range of 15,000 years ago to 130,000 years ago. Mm. Uh, okay. And I think you can get a little more of a detail 
because we notice that the earliest artifacts of humanity are in East Africa and the Persian Gulf, which indicates that the origin of humanity must have been relatively close to epochs when there is an easy migration route between the Persian Gulf and East Africa. And during the last ice age, there were three times when there was a very easy migration route up the Gihon River over the land bridge between Arabia and East Africa. And I named those three dates in navigating Genesis as like 117,000 years ago, 73,000 years ago, and about 52,000 years ago. So okay. you can pick one of those dates, but hey, if you want to be conservative, sometime between 15 and 130,000 years ago. And that also is consistent with the biblical genealogies. I mean, the genealogies kind of give you a rough clue, but we know that all the biblical genealogies are incomplete. And so it's basically trying to discern, okay, how complete are they? Well, the incompleteness factor roughly manages, uh, roughly is consistent with the date we get from Genesis chapter two. Okay. Um, well, that's a lot of information there. Uh, if you're listening, my guest today is Hugh Ross, reasons.org. And uh, he is an old earth creationist. I am not, I'm actually a young earth creationist. And, uh, but I love talking to people who, who don't agree with me. I find it very interesting and I like to hear their perspectives. And uh, so uh, just so you're aware, if you're, if you're just tuning in, there's also lots of options to, to hear the other side of the issue of what Hugh's talking about. Um, one of the people that I had the opportunity to interview is Dr. John Sanford. And um, uh, you probably know him, uh, Dr. Oh, Ross. Oh, yeah, I know who he is. Yeah, Cornell, he was a Cornell University geneticist. And I'm just curious about this. He, he studied population genetics, and he said um, very specifically that the rate of mutation that we're seeing in populations um, limits the ability to go back too far, right? You end up, if you go back too far, the rate of mutation, uh, uh, we would basically be extinct because we're, we're getting increasing mutations as we, uh, every generation has 100 to 300 new mutations and you're essentially corrupting the DNA. And ultimately you couldn't really go, based on that rate, you couldn't go back farther than 6,000 years before you got to Adam and Eve. Um, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Um, uh, and and does, do you feel that genetics uh, supports, uh, first of all, does it support God? And second of all, does it support, support either an old earth or a young earth? Well, we actually had John Sanford speak at our Reasons to Believe headquarters to our scientific team. Hmm. I mean, we love engaging people who are prepared to engage us with That's the spirit awesome. of charity. Yeah. And uh, John is, you know, one of the few young earth creationists who is able to do that. So we're very much welcoming him. We agree that the genetic data on current humanity argues for a relatively recent date uh, for uh, God creating Adam and Eve. Uh, where we disagree is that he's presuming the mutation rate has been constant throughout all of human history. And we would argue that that's not the case. In fact, I had a right wrote in Navigating Genesis. If we take seriously the biblical claim, as I do, that people living before the flood had the potential to live eight or 900 years, uh, that means we're looking at a much reduced mutation rate. And uh, therefore, you could have an earlier date than 6,000 years, but you can't have a million years. You can't have half a million years. We're looking at something in the order of say 50 to 100,000 uh, years ago. And you know, kind of what we've said with both, and by the way, we've had these debates with BioLogos because they have genetics experts. Mm -hmm. And uh, our response to them is the same to John, is that genetics is not yet a high precision science. Mm -hmm. In fact, it probably never will be. Uh, it's a very complex issue. Sure. And matter of fact, a number of atheist geneticists have basically said, there's no way you can look at the genetic diversity of present day human beings, or for that matter, any other mammal species, and come up with a date back to the common, uh, to the original couple, is that uh, you, you never get an accurate date. It could easily be off by a factor of 10 or 20. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now, um, I was... Um... I, when I was up at Biola, uh, the, the, by and large, uh, they, they had an interesting answer whenever we got into a discussions about age of the earth. Um, uh, Dr. Bloom uh, said, and several professors said, uh, you know, I'm a young earth creationist uh, three days a week and an old earth creationist four days a week, which I thought was pretty funny. But, but um, what, what was interesting to me was 
one guy actually said to me, I've met, I've never met a young earth creationist. And I thought to myself, well, that, that that's silly. How, how can you never met a young earth creationist? One of my classmates. And we had some really good discussions. It was very interesting. And it was great to have this open dialogue and everything. But, you know, um, when it comes down to the historical record in, in uh, the Bible and in Genesis, and you're looking at this, um, you've referenced several times the book of nature and the, you know, contrasted with the book of scripture. Uh, can you clarify with us? Because some people would argue, they'd say, oh, you know, Hugh Ross, he, um, he elevates the book of, uh, of nature higher than he elevates the book of scripture, right? Saying, um, accusing you that you placed a higher level on uh, science. And uh, I had some interesting conversations where one of the students said, yeah, um, he said, you know, biblically, I think scripture is more clear that the earth is young, but he said, but scientifically, I think the evidence leans toward it being old. And he said, therefore, I've decided that it's old. What are your thoughts on that? And, and uh, as far as it pertains to the book of nature versus the book of science, uh, can you explain that to our listeners, um, the, the thought yeah, process there? To be really clear, we uphold all the affirmations and denials of the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy. We also uphold sola scriptura, that the Bible is the only propositional authoritative revelation from God. But it's that authoritative revelation that tells us in Psalm 19 and Romans 1 and elsewhere, the record of nature is a book from God, and God cannot lie or deceive. The book of nature is utterly trustworthy and reliable. So if we see the possibility of a conflict between what God reveals in the book of nature and what he reveals in the book of scripture, we know it's not God's fault. It's our problem. We've misinterpreted one book or the other. And in some cases, we misinterpret both. And so whenever we find an anomaly or an apparent disagreement, that should motivate us to study. Let's dig into this and see if we can get it resolved. And what I find interesting is that when I teach at a seminary, that's how seminary researchers treat the book of scripture. If they see one book of the Bible apparently contradicting another book, they say, we got to dig in and resolve this. And if you study enough, you get a resolution. And my peers in science, they operate the same way. They say, if we see an apparent conflict between geophysics and astrophysics, then we've misinterpreted something. Let's dig into this. Let's do more research and let's resolve it. And the other thing we notice is both theologians and scientists, whenever we resolve an apparent contradiction or an anomaly, it reveals what other ones we hadn't even seen before. Mm. But the new ones we see are at our lower level of significance, which is an indication you're on the pathway to truth. If the anomalies become less and less significant as you learn more and more, then you know you're going in the right direction. But you also know you don't have the total truth yet. And frankly, sure. we humans will never have the total truth. There's yeah. always more to learn uh, from both books. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, it and, does. Yeah. But again, from a biblical perspective, my point is it's not enough to read the creation text literally, which I do. You have to read them consistently. There's over two dozen major creation texts in the Bible, not just those in Genesis. And I think God expects us to integrate all these creation texts. And, you know, I didn't meet a young earth creationist for the first nine years I was a Christian. And uh, that's because I went through all these texts and said, boy, uh, when you integrate all the texts, the Bible is an old earth book. And so it was a shock to me to meet someone who thought it was a young earth book. Uh, but now I kind of understand because I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Yeah. You know, I, I came to Christ through studying a Gideon Bible. And, uh, you know, when I started sharing my faith, I was sharing my faith with atheists. Uh, every church I went to where I was raised in Canada People didn't believe the Bible was the word of God. So I didn't go to church until I came to the U.S. Oh, wow. And uh, that's where I found Bible-believing churches. And that's when I first met young earth creationists. Uh, but it's always a fun time to sit down with them and say, let's go through all the creation texts, not just the first page of the Bible. Mm. And let's see if we can make sense of it all. That's great. Uh, so... So um, I, I really appreciate um, how open you are to dialogue and everything. I think that's fantastic. Uh, when it comes to, um, you know, looking at this from uh, the perspective of history and everything, 
um, and and when you're de- dealing with people that are talking about evolution, um, what is it that keeps you from being an evolutionist? So so from an origin issue, um, you you believe in old earth geology, but you don't believe in evolution. Um, so what is it about it that keeps what science or, or I don't know if there's biblically, if you have an argument against evolution also, what is it that keeps you from being uh, a, um, either a evolutionary creationist or a theistic evolutionist? Yeah, well, I've never been an evolutionist, even when I was not a Christian. Uh, you know, my story is I became very fascinated by astronomy when I was seven. I was reading five books a week on physics and astronomy, and that wow. made my parents upset, you know. <laughs> So at, when I was 11, they bought our family this big, thick book on evolutionary biology. I was the only one in the family that read it. But I said to my parents, mom, dad, the numbers don't add up. Uh, you know, all, all you got is 3.8 billion years for the history of life on planet Earth. There's no way you can make all this happen uh, through naturalistic evolution. And I said, well, go talk to your professors. And none of my professors could help me with that, too. So when you say there's not enough, the numbers don't add up, what do you mean by that exactly? Well, what you notice, for example, is that when you get to the higher life forms, uh, in the present era, the extinction rate far outweighs the speciation rate. Mm. So, for example, we know that when God created Adam and Eve, there was a little more than 8,000 species of mammals. Well, today on planet Earth, there's only 4,000. And none of those 4,000 are new species. And there's been field studies done uh, where they take a mammalian species that's had a population drop. And what they discover is if the mammal species has an adult body size greater than seven pounds, it will go extinct before it can experience any possible significant evolutionary change by naturalistic means. Mm. So any mammal that is an adult body size bigger than uh, seven pounds is not going to evolve. It's going to go extinct. And that matches the field studies. It matches what we observe about the extinction rate. And you can extend that to birds, to insects, etc. Uh, but as a scientist, what really persuaded me, first of all, the origin of the universe, where we now have these space-time theorems that prove that not only does the matter and energy of the universe have a beginning, even space and time as a beginning. Mm. And so you need a creator that creates space, time, matter, and energy, and does so instantly. And then you look at the origin of life. I've been studying the origin of life for decades, and uh, there's really no possible, even conceivable, naturalistic scenario that can explain the origin of life. I mean, you can get amazing achievements in a laboratory, but you're using highly trained biochemists using very expensive equipment where all the chemicals they bring in are purified. That never happens in the naturalistic realm. And basically I share with my origin of life friends that are atheists saying, notice how intelligent and well-educated you are. Look at all the equipment you're using. Look how much money you're spending. Someone a whole lot more educated than you with a lot more technology and power must have been the one that created life because you can't do hardly anything in the lab. Yeah, uh, they're nowhere close to making life from scratch. They can re-engineer life, but they can't make life from scratch. Mm. And then I look at the um, mass speciation events, things like the Avalon explosion of the first animals, followed by the Cambrian explosion. And then when you look at uh, human beings, uh, you know, Darwin made a prediction when he wrote his book. He made the prediction that the smartest of non-human animals would be the animals that most closely resemble our physical uh, appearance. And therefore, everybody expected the chimpanzee would prove to be the most intelligent non-human animal. And chimpanzees are smart, but they're nowhere near as intelligent as ravens and crows. So, I mean, if you're an evolutionist, you'd have to conclude we're descended from ravens. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to being descended from the great apes. Yeah. Uh, There's a mismatch there. Now, from a creation perspective, you could have a mismatch. But from a naturalistic perspective, uh, the advance of intellectual capability must match the advance of a morphological similarity with humanity, and that doesn't happen. Yeah. That shocked me. No paper was published 
pointing out that failed prediction of Charles Darwin until eight years ago. And the title wow. of the paper was Darwin's Mistake. But uh, wow. they very clearly pointed out, look, there's a huge difference here. And that just led to a flood of papers that made the point, only humans are capable of manipulating symbols. Now, no, that, those are, are those uh, papers published uh, in, in uh, peer-reviewed scientific uh, secular journals? They are, and I cite them in my book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job. I mean, okay. I wrote that book. When those papers started getting published, I said, this has got to be made public. Uh, so I said, yeah, that's huge I'm about this. And I'm going to cite these papers. That's great. Um, yeah. So, so um, you've, you've made it really clear, you know, and, and if, I, I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. James Tor too about, you know, the, the feasibility of evolution from a, uh, chemical level, uh, organic chemical level. He's, and that, that was stunning what he had to say. And, um, I think there's so much evidence that doesn't support evolution. It's, it's hard sometimes to w wonder why people continue to hold so tightly to it. But, uh, from a biblical perspective, is there a biblical reason not to believe in evolution or is it mostly a scientific uh, case you're making against the evolution? biblical reasons is that God takes credit, uh, for the existence of different life forms on planet earth and uses verbs like asa and bara in the Hebrew, where, you know, words that translate as create, make, manufacture. And so this is not a God just sitting back and letting the natural process unfold everything. If that was the case, you'd expect the use of the Hebrew verb hayah, uh, which you see in Genesis chapter one. Sometimes you see it says, let there be, which means, you know, let the natural process unfold. Uh, but the fact that it uses the verbs asa and bara means this is God's direct supernatural intervention. So yes, the Bible, God takes credit for personally intervening uh, to create life here on planet Earth. So would that mean that that um, theistic evolution would be wrong because it's more deistic, but uh, uh, creationary evolution would be a possible uh, uh, valid paradigm in, in your view? How do you how do you view that? Well, I'm a little more comfortable with the evolutionary creationists, but I'm very uncomfortable with their position that science cannot tell the difference. Mm, it's like, I, see what you're saying. I mean, God does not erase the evidence of his miracles. Uh, you know, we can go back and see uh, the evidence for the creation of space and time. God didn't use a big eraser and says, I'm going to hide this from you. Yeah, yeah. And likewise with the origin of life. You know, when I engaged my friends of Biologos, I said, Let's look at the easy problem, this idea that physics and chemistry can produce biology. This is much simpler science to deal with than the history of Earth's life. And at that level, uh, you realize that, you know, this cannot be a naturalistic process. I mean, I mean, we, okay, what I think was different, the scientists we have at Reasons to Believe, we regularly attend origin of life research conferences. Mm. So we get to hear firsthand uh, what these non-theistic origin of life researchers are trying to do. Yeah. And they frankly admit that they're running into intractable problems. Mm -hmm. In fact, what we've observed over the past 20 years is each successive origin of life research conference is more depressing than the previous one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because they keep running into these roadblocks. Yeah, they the just can't, they attended, can't overcome them. Yeah. Well, they're actually admitting that they're not only can't they overcome them, there's no possibility that they're going to be able to overcome them. Wow, that's awesome. Um, and so, um, along those same lines, I was, um, you know, uh, I was in the back room of, of a conference one time. I was um, going to be speaking uh, specifically about the historical credibility of the Bible, and I happened to be in the room with several other gentlemen who were going to be speaking. And I overheard this conversation, and uh, that one of the gentlemen said. Uh, not knowing, I don't think he knew that I was a young earth creationist, or he maybe wouldn't say, or maybe he knew and he was just like, hey, I'm, <laughs> I want to make you make this clear to you. Um, but he said, um, I don't think young earth creationists should even have a, a, a place at the table. He said, uh, I don't, I think they should be banned from the, uh, you know, the scientific conventions and everything. Um, you know, what's your attitude towards that? Because a lot of uh, young earth creationists feel that there is a stigma against um, them because for whatever reason, even when I was at Biola, I was kind of um, 
a little bit bothered because I felt like there there wasn't a good representation of that particular viewpoint from somebody who had was well credentialed scientifically. Um, and so um, I'm just curious, how do you feel about that? Well, number one, uh, this is not a salvation issue. Mm. I think many of my young earth friends make it a salvation issue unnecessarily, mm. or they try to tie it into the doctrine of the atonement. Sure. And uh, I think that's a huge biblical mistake. And how I try to persuade my young earth friends, I said, notice the age of the earth is not in any of the biblical creeds, not even in the longest creeds like the Belgic Confession or the Westminster Confession. It's missing. And so the fact that it's not in the creeds means this is not something we should divide fellowship over. And uh, also, uh, we should be cautious about using something that's not in the creeds as an evangelistic tool. I said, I'm fine with you being a young earth creationist, but I would caution you uh, to use your belief in a young earth creation to try to persuade an atheist scientist to come to Christ. And it's based on the principle you see in Acts 15. Do not put an unnecessary barrier uh, between a non-Christian and come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, you may feel very passionately that circumcision is crucial uh, to being a Christian, uh, but don't make it a barrier. And likewise, I would say, don't make the age of the earth a barrier to someone coming to Christ. But in order to understand uh, where these uh, comments are coming from, you know, in several debates I've had with young earth creationist scientists, the moderator of our debate asked this question to the young earth creationists. Do you know of any scientists who thinks there's evidence for a young earth independent of any Bible interpretation? And uh, I can name you the names. It was John Morris and Dwayne Gish uh, that were involved. And they were long debates. And both of them said, you know, over our 40 year career, we have yet to hear or know of a single scientist who independent of a Bible interpretation ever thought there was evidence uh, for a young earth or a young universe. And what the moderator shared with me, he says, that's all I need to know. I'm not a scientist, but that tells me there really is no credible scientific evidence uh, for a young earth. And that explains to why you see in the Supreme Court hearing on a creation science, uh, where a geologist stepped forward and said, you know, I put this in the same category uh, as a flat earth. Now, keep in mind today, 7% of the adult U.S. population believes that the earth is flat. Uh, but don't be surprised if scientists say, hey, if that's your position, I don't want to talk to you. And I think that's the same thing you're getting uh, from, say, atheist scientists who think that uh, they have to believe in a young earth in order to become a Christian. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, do you mind if I push back a little bit on that? Yeah, Just go to, ahead. Um, so I, I feel like that would be difficult to say that there's a scientist that believes that um, in a young earth creation, independent of the Bible, simply because especially during the time of Dwayne Gish and, and, um, and a John Morris, uh, the, by far the majority of people were Christians and, and believed in the Bible. So it'd be very difficult to, to actually come to the, to find an atheist. I mean, atheism was a blip on, I mean, it's still very low percentage, but uh, even agnosticism was generally non-existent, especially in America um, up until re relatively recently. Um, would you say or, or no? Well, that's true of the American public. It's about 90% that believe uh, in God and an afterlife. And by the way, that percentage has not changed hardly at all over the past 100 years. Hmm. Amongst research scientists, you get a different percentage. It's 45% that believe in God and an afterlife. And likewise, over 100 years, that percentage has not changed. I find that interesting because... Uh, a professor of philosophy, uh, Luba, Dr. Luba, back in 1916 predicted with a march of scientific knowledge, we're going to see scientists abandoning belief in God and an afterlife. That has not happened. The percentage is the same today as it was back in 1916, mm. which tells me that it's not just the scientific evidence. There's other issues. And the Bible has always made it clear that there would never be a majority of people that would be followers of Jesus Christ, but mm. also made it clear it would be a large minority. So the fact that 45% believe in God and an afterlife, 
that to me kind of fits the biblical standard. You know, people really study the issue. That's about the percentage you would expect. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so, so um, when when we're discussing, you know, I've I've interviewed quite a bit of uh, creationists, a, a decent amount of creation scientists, uh, and I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of their names. Uh, uh, Dr. John Bart uh, Baumgartner, geophysicist, sure. and and um, uh, like I said, Dr. Sanford, and mm-hmm. and um, a variety of other different scientists. Um, do you think? Um, have you ever heard an, an argument for creation, uh, for a recent creation, uh, only around 6,000 years old, that you felt like, well, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting argument um, that bears a scientific weight? Um, or do you feel like, no, you've, you've never heard anything that Oh, stands? it's zero. I've yet to hear one. I mean, I wrote this book, uh, A Matter of Days. Mm-hmm. And mainly what I did in this book is give the biblical evidence why the creation days must be long periods of time. But I also have several chapters where I address the scientific arguments that people put forward for young earth and basically explain, once you understand the scientific background, what looks like scientific evidence for young earth always transforms into scientific evidence uh, for an old earth. I mean, a Mm. good example, and this is a little bit dated, uh, people were saying, well, uh, if the universe is old, then the moon is going to have 200 feet of dust on its surface. And Mm. so when they walked on the moon, they found that it only had uh, 60 millimeters. And they said, that's proof that the uh, uh, moon indeed is young and not old. Well, what was missing is to get that 200 feet, it was based on a scientist putting a filter on top of Mauna Kea in Hawaii and measuring the amount of dust that went through the filter and assuming all the dust was space dust. And he published the result and said, based on that, we would expect this many feet of dust on the moon. But he had a caveat in there. It says, who knows of all the dust coming through my filter is space dust. And he says, we need to repeat this experiment with a satellite and with high altitude balloons. And when they did that, they discovered that his estimate was off by a factor of 1,100 times and actually determined uh, that you would only get uh, about a centimeter of uh, dust on the moon. But then another paper got published and said, we need to realize powerful ultraviolet radiation from the sun is gonna produce more dust than just what you get from space and calculated there would be 60 millimeters of dust on the moon if the moon was 4.5 billion years old. And when the Apollo astronauts went to the moon, that's what they found, 60 millimeters. Mm. Okay, so, and then, Another question along those same lines, um, you know, I, I had Mark Armitage on, um, he, he found, uh, he was, he used, he was a microscopy expert uh, at Cal State Northridge. He found a triceratops horn. It had uh, tissues in it, uh, a non-fossilized bone tissue and cells and everything. And um, so from that perspective, uh, you know, some people have said, well, we don't agree with the idea that dinosaurs, um, you know, evolved 230 million years ago. They went extinct 65 million years ago. Where do you stand on dinosaurs? Do they, is that something that was created um, along the way with, with God? And then um, eventually we got up to Adam and Eve, or how does that all fit for you uh, in your paradigm? Yeah, well, my colleague, Fazal Rana, he's their staff biochemist. He wrote a book in response to Armitage's claims. It's called Dinosaur Blood and the Age of the Earth. Mm. And he basically said the problem with Armitage's claims is he's not aware that if you cut off exposure to oxygen and bacteria, these tissues can be preserved for many tens of millions of years, even hundreds of millions of years. It explains, for example, why we have such good soft tissue preservation in the Cambrian fossils. Uh, because you had this massive uh, mudslide that buried these creatures, cut off the oxygen, uh, protected them from radiation damage, and cut off the bacteria. And so even though the fossils are 540 million years old, the soft tissues are perfectly preserved. And so, but you know, Armitage is right. If you've got oxygen and you've got bacteria, it's going to degrade very quickly. Uh, But these are cases uh, where that was not, not the situation. So, uh, and I missed one other part of your question. 
Your, um, well, I wanted to know where in your your particular view, progressive oh, yeah. creation. Where do the dinosaurs fit? Yeah, where do they fit in that whole uh, design? Well, I believe that the Bible is inspired to communicate to all generations, not just the generation of the author and not just 21st century readers, but to all generations. And therefore, it doesn't surprise me that the Bible says nothing about neutrinos. We've only known about neutrinos uh, for the past 60 years. And that would mean nothing to people reading the Bible a thousand years ago. Well, likewise, dinosaurs weren't discovered until 200 years ago. So we shouldn't be surprised that the Bible is silent on dinosaurs. But where I think you can imply it is Psalm 104. It's the longest of the creation Psalms in the Bible and makes the point that God has filled the earth with as much life as possible and as diverse as possible. You've got phrases saying, go into the deepest ocean, you'll find life. Go to the highest mountain, you'll find life. It's everywhere. And it's basically making the point, to get to the end of Psalm 104, it says the property of all life to die off, but God recreates and renews the face of the earth. And I cite this as a biblical indication and when we look at the fossil record, we should expect to see mass extinction events followed by mass speciation events. And what I say to evolutionists is, what you're overlooking is the physics of the sun. The sun is getting brighter and brighter as it gets older and older. And the way the creator compensates for the brightening of the sun is that he removes species of life from the planet and replaces those species with new life that's more efficient in pulling greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. But we know this is the miraculous hand of God because God creates just the right life at just the right time and the right diversity and the right geography to exactly pull the amount of greenhouse gases of the atmosphere to perfectly compensate for the brightening of the sun. Only a being that knows the future physics of the sun would know which life to remove from the earth and which new life to replace that with. And in terms of the dinosaurs, uh, these are really large land creatures, uh, which means that the only way they could survive on the planet would be if they had water buoyancy support. I mean, the largest animal you can have on the earth without water buoyancy support is an elephant. You get a creature bigger than the elephant, then gravity is gonna result in significant injury to the creature. Mm. Uh, but with water support, so for example, if you've got 15 feet of water, that water will provide buoyancy where you could have a creature instead of weighing six tons, weighs 50 tons. And uh, notice the only time we have dinosaurs in the face of the earth is when you've got these very large, extensive shallow seas covering most of North America and Europe and South America and Asia. And when those seas are no longer around, the dinosaurs are no longer around. You oh, that's say, well, interesting. I've never heard that before. Well, no matter what geological era you're in, God creates the maximum biomass, the maximum biodiversity. There are no dinosaurs today because there aren't the shallow seas to support them. Mm. But where they are, God creates them. And notice he creates them with the maximum diversity. You've got really tiny dinosaurs that are just a few inches in body size, and you got the ones that are 100 feet long. you got the whole range. And you know this is God basically showing us the extravagance of his creation power. But where we humans benefit, because of God creating life uh, with maximum diversity and maximum biomass for the maximum time window that the physics of the sun would permit, we humans today have over 76 quadrillion tons of biodeposits in the crust of the earth. Coal, oil, natural gas, marble, limestone, gypsum. And we're able to use that to launch and sustain global civilization. You know, one reason why I'm an old earth creationist, it takes 3.8 billion years of our planet being maximally packed with life that God creates to provide us with all the resources so that billions of people can hear and respond to the gospel message in just a few thousand years. And I build that off of Revelation 7-9. The redeemed hosts will be from every tribe, nation, language, people, and it's gonna be an uncountable number 
of redeemed humans. And at that time, the Greeks had a number system that went up into the billions. So it's telling us there's going to be billions of humans that will be redeemed. Mm. And for that to be possible in a short period of time, you're going to need these quadrillions of biodeposits. And notice the biodeposits are all optimized to enable us to sustain civilization at a very high level. You know, mm. A lot of people don't even realize, for example, the metals we mine, they were concentrated by bacteria, sulfate-reducing bacteria on our, proliferating on our planet for 2.5 billion years, transforms soluble metals into insoluble metals, which won't poison us. Soluble metals would be deadly, but today there's very little soluble metals. Most of them are insoluble, and they're highly concentrated by these bacteria, so we can mine them and quickly launch metallurgy. Well, Dr. Ross, um, we're almost out of time here. I just want to say thank you so much for being on the program. Um, I, I love talking to you, and I love that you're so civil, too. I think that's so important in our dialogue, and I really appreciate um, your testimony in that, in that sense. Um, uh, for those of you listening, reasons.org, Dr. Hugh Ross, and uh, he has got all kinds of interesting books um, that you can read and study and, uh, and check out. And, and Dr. Ross, uh, they can get free copies of some of the chapters of your, uh, your most recent book um, on your website also. Is that correct? Yeah, reasons.org slash Ross. They can get free chapters of eight of the 20 books uh, that I've written. Oh, that's fantastic. Okay, well, um, uh, thanks again, uh, Dr. Ross. Uh, and for those of you uh, who didn't hear, my website is educateforlife.org, and I've got a full apologetics curriculum up there also that's meant for you to be able to study the Word of God and come to good conclusions about uh, the truth of the Bible and ultimately uh, be able to share your faith with those around you and be comfortable about it, not have to get defensive, not have to get uh, take it personally, but just be able, like, like Christ said, um, he's come to set the captives free. And what we're looking at is just helping people to be aware of the truth and ultimately to come to know Jesus Christ, their Savior, and be able to spend eternity in heaven. So I hope you enjoyed the show today. We've got all kinds of other shows up um, on my website and online, over 200 shows now with experts in every area you can possibly imagine. And so uh, please check it out and um, also check out reasons.org. Thank you, Dr. Ross. Oh, you're very welcome. My pleasure. Absolutely. Have a great evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.